We'll read through the end of the chapter. Just a few verses here this morning. If you'll join me. Romans 8, begin, or, I'm sorry, Romans 13, beginning in verse 8. I'll bring you out the New King James Version. God's Word says, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For you who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, all summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And do this, knowing the time, that now it is high time to awake out of sleep. For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. Luke chapter 21 is our text. Even though we read earlier this morning from Romans 13, I wanted to make that connection. Uh, hopefully you'll see very quickly why I connected Luke 21, a passage this morning with Romans 13. Uh, I think that Luke, of course, was a fellow traveler of who? Paul. Paul, the author of the book of Romans. And I think that we can uh, uh, not only see that uh, Luke is a great historian in terms of drawing from the uh, information that he received from interviews and such. Obviously, Luke was not in the Holy Land during the time of Jesus. So all of his material is gathered information from others. Uh, he did interviews, certainly. Uh, and these are some of the accounts that were uh, that kind of stuck, if you will, in the church, that were uh, repeated. Certainly he had some documents to reference, and uh, we talk about those in textual criticism, the documents different authors had to reference. Uh, Luke probably, of the all four, probably had the most access. John seems to really just base it upon his own uh, recollections and his own uh, involvement there with Jesus Christ, trying to uh, really focus maybe on some things that the others did not rehearse. Uh, but Luke also is going to reflect some Pauline theology. Uh, and of course, Paul didn't get originate that. That came from the Holy Spirit. So you're going to see some influence there on each other. On uh, the influence of Christ's ministry uh, and the Holy Spirit's ministry through Paul, uh, both coming forward in Luke. And so here we come into Luke chapter 21. We have already studied uh, really already two weeks, this sermon about the end times is prophetic utterance of Christ. We want, now want to take it to uh, its final presentation. We start off by rehearsing and talking about when will Jerusalem fall, what will be the signs of it, and what's the deal with that? You made a proclamation that all these stones will be uh, not left upon another, uh, when it's going to happen, what will be the signs? Crisis will be happening in your generation. It's when you see an army surrounding the city. Know that it's going to happen right then and there. That was the historical past to us. It was still future to the disciples, but it was the near future. It was their generation. 
Jesus Christ then presses it further and he wants to talk about that is um, something that's going to happen in your lifetime, but there is something farther out that needs to be referenced as well, and that is the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, when will your kingdom be established? Is really what they also wanted to know, and he's going to answer that. When will the kingdom of God come on earth? And Jesus gives this reference that this is the sign, this is the time. It's going to be way out there. There's going to be this distress. And, and he shares for us, this is for our time, certainly uh, more so than their time, perhaps for my children more than for me even, but it's still very relevant even to, our, to my generation, I think. But um, each generation has been able to take this instruction and apply it. And that is, in preparation for the Son of Man, what should be our response? Our response is to be, look up. Lift up your heads, your redemption draws near. It is not something we fear, it's something we anticipate. That doesn't mean it doesn't give us a quick heart rate, because it can. Um, Excitement can do that just as much as fear. Uh, And so we should be a little excited about it, but certainly not dreading it or fearful of it or the events around it. And certainly the events around it are not very uh, happy ones, apparently. Uh, When we see about uh, signs in the sun, moon, and stars, distress of nations, perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, man's heart failing them from fear, and the expectation of those things to come. And so for men of this world, they're fearing it. For us, we're looking up. We don't have the perplexity, shouldn't. We don't have the fear, at least we shouldn't. Uh, We shouldn't have this distress. Uh, We know what's coming. We are anticipating it. And we know fundamentally that in the midst of it, something wonderful is going to happen for the people of God. Our completed redemption. That our purchase as the family of God will be finished. It will be completed. So we come now to verse 29, and he picks up a parable of a fig tree, and we talked about that a bit last uh, week, but not very much. I wanted to get into that. He gives us an illustration, a parable of a fig tree, uh, to give us some understanding of what you should expect. Uh, When you see fig trees budding, you know something. You don't know what the harvest is going to be. You don't know the day you're going to be able to pull the fruit off the vine. But you do know that something's coming. When you start to see the buds occur, and you see, then you know for yourselves. You don't have to wait for someone else to tell you. You know something. There I go. I walk up this tree and I see the buds. We're not talking about blossoms. You're just seeing buds. You go, oh, what do I know? What do I know for myself? I don't need someone to tell me. I don't need to consult the newspaper. I don't need to consult the almanac. I don't have to run and Google it. What do we know? Spring is about to occur. Now, it doesn't mean that there couldn't be some cold snaps between now and the summer, but we know the summer's on its way. We know that for ourselves. And this is the work that signs are supposed to do for us. It is so that we can know for ourselves... Here's the plain evidence. It's not some hidden mystery. Was this a revelation to any of you that when trees bud, it means the spring's here? Was that a revelation for any of you today? 
it's something we kind of pick up. It's just like, well, duh, you know. And then when they start to drop off, turn color, drop off, we know that winter's coming because it's our experience. Well, this is how real these signs should be to us. We should just, they should be common with that understanding that this is the evidence that Jesus Christ is coming. And so, just as obvious as it was an army surrounding Jerusalem, so obvious will be the signs of Christ's coming that they cannot really be missed unless we simply just don't believe what is written here. And so we have this confirmation because everything happened to Jerusalem just as Jesus said. We come to verse 33 and it says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. Your generation, disciples, will not pass away until everything I've said essentially about Jerusalem is going to come to be. Those verses from uh, really going back to what he said in verse 6, one stone be left upon another that shall be thrown down. I think that is the antecedent to these things in verse 32. Uh, this gener- until, all, until all things take place. And the question is, what are the all things? Is it everything he's discussed? Or is it the fall Jerusalem that he began with that he gave some information and he's excluding this parenthetical information for us? And I would contend that that is the antecedent of all things, was all things with regard to Jerusalem being falling into the hands of Gentiles. That's going to happen in your generation, disciples. And because that happens, just the way Jesus said, just the way the Bible describes, we have a confidence that's given to us in verse 33. That heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. How sure are we about these signs of the times? How sure are we about this kingdom of God? It is more sure than the planet we live on. It is more sure than heaven itself. It is more sure, this truth, than the sun coming up tomorrow. That's one of the stars. It is more sure than where, you know, um, the next solar eclipse is going to be. We can do all those things because we... Note the stars and the sun and the moon, they all operate on schedule. And we can predict, what, eternity into the future, just about, if we had enough computer time and space, of where every star and every event will be to, at least within the visible world. Doesn't mean we can predict that maybe there might be something out there black that we don't see. But from what we can see, It moves. It's a clock. The seasons come, they go, and we can very easily get caught in the trap of the world and think it's always going to be the way it's always been. The problem is it hasn't always been this way. But the Bible says that's what the world is going to say. Oh, you people believe that everything comes to an end. No, God's Word is so sure. It's more sure than the earth you're sitting on, stepping on, walking on, living on. It's more sure than the heavens above that we can set our clocks to. It is more sure. Because those things are not eternal. But when Jesus says something, it is. It is that sure. It will not pass away. It will not just dissolve. So, we saw that the response to understanding what's going to happen in the future, we are 
told, first of all, to lift up our heads. We saw that last week in verse 28. And a powerful, positive statement. Um, we're going to say some negative things in between, and we're going to end with another powerful, positive statement. Okay? And so what Jesus has done is he's taken, look up. He's going to tell you what looking up is not. And then he's come back and remind you, look up. Let's look at it. He says, but take heed to yourselves. Verse 34. Lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come on you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And in the daytime, he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and stayed at the Mount of Olives, called Olivet. Then early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. We are given a warning. Watch out. Take heed to yourselves. First of all, look to yourself. Prepare yourself and guard yourself from something. Guard your heart from three things. And really from being, this is not a, uh, a complete list. He's given us three examples in Romans 13. We're going to see pretty much an identical format. He's given you three areas of life to guard your heart in. He describes them here, Jesus does, as carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life. These are all three things that are the natural response of man if he thinks that everything is going to continue as it always has. I would contend with you that if those people are correct and this is all there is, then these three things are really all there are to life. That you're going to live your life by one of these three things or two or three, all three of them. Because you have no hope of anything beyond today, beyond this existence. If this is all there is, what should you do? Well, let me tell you what you should do. You shouldn't bother with the law. Don't bother obeying the law. Don't bother worrying about other people. Don't bother worrying about what's right. Don't bother. Go out and do these three things. Carousing. Carousing simply is, I'm going to care for myself. I'm just going to go out and have a good time. And when you hear people talk about that, I'm just going to go out there and I'm going to basically lead this hedonistic lifestyle and I'm just going to go and enjoy everything. Everything is for my enjoyment. And if I don't enjoy it, I hang you up and throw you out of my life. I'm here to enjoy life. And if I can get away with not having to work to enjoy life, then I'm going to do that. Every get-rich-quick get scheme I've ever heard of... Um, Every uh, invitation to multi-level marketing and things like that. I remember Amway presentations that um, I'm on by pastors when I'm trying to raise support for the mission field. And, and uh, is like, oh, what do you want in life? And I was like, well, I want to start churches. I want, and I'm giving all these, you know, I want to serve the Lord with gladness. I want to, you know, he's like, don't you want a boat, a cabin, all these things? I said, Where is he coming from? Carousing, essentially, is feeding the lusts of the flesh. I'm just going to go serve myself. 
And I'll do it. It doesn't matter who I step on. It doesn't matter who I smash. It doesn't matter who else is hurt. As long as I get what I want. Because if this is all there is, if this life is all there is, that's how you should live, folks. Go for it. Carouse. This is your, this is your party. This is it. You got a few years? You might as well enjoy it if this is all there is. If this is all there is to life, go for it. Don't take life seriously. doesn't matter. Secondly, if you really start thinking, if you're a thinking man here, <laughs> or woman, if you're a thinking person, despair is going to hit you a little differently. And when you have no hope, and it starts to really sink into you, um, running away from those thoughts is what's best for you. And that's what drunkenness is. Drunkenness fundamentally is I have nothing to live for and I don't want to think about it. Drunkenness is just running away from despair. Or at least think, you're not running away from despair. You're just giving yourself relief from thinking of it. That you're that your life has no point, that your life is, is going nowhere, that there's, why am I alive? I can't answer the question of why I'm here. I, I'm just a little molecule and the big thing that's gone on for billions of years in the past and will go on for billions of years in the future. What am I? And the evolutionist should be a drunkard. Because frankly, if you think about that too long, you'll go out there and kill yourself. So you might as well get drunk. Because that is a right response if, if this is all there is. It is. Go get drunk. Hide from the despair that you know life is. If there is no God and there is no culmination to everything there is, drunkenness is a right response. And that's why it's such an evil thing for Christians to get drunk because you have nothing to despair of. Yes, there's the self-control issue and we're taking that away from the Spirit and, and uh, all of that. But fundamentally, drunkenness is really just saying, I have nothing to live for. And I want to hide from that fact. The third one on the list here is where the majority of Americans live, and that is the cares of this life. Tell me, put this in perspective a little bit, since there's nothing after this, then I'm going to gather all the materials that I can, and I'm going to try to invest them in the next generation, and I'm going to focus on this life, that the physical world, and so if I can create a physical progeny after myself, I can to have children and invest in them. That's the best I can do is try to gather the most stuff around me, have the, the, the best kind of life. And I understand that I can come up to it and say, well, laws are okay because they, they keep the peace and they, and they make, make it available for everybody to have this good life. And we're going to try to live as good a life as I can and pass it on to my children. And then uh, and we wrap ourselves up in the cares of this life and physical life becomes all there is. And I want to share with you 
that if Jesus is not coming back, if the world is going to go on for millions of years, this is the right response. Live for today, gather your toys as many as you can together, and pass them on to the next generation, your lifeline, and don't care about anybody else. The cares of this life. Go to work, do your duty, be patriotic, and uh, be a good family man, and do all that, and create a purpose for yourself in this world. But that purpose is empty because once you're done, it's gone. And the writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that what happens, you pass it on to those kids and they don't appreciate it. It ruins them. Because now they have no purpose. They have all the stuff you left them. So they can check cares of the life off their list because they have all their cares met because you did such a great job on cares of the life in your age. So what's left for them? Carousing and drunkenness. Isn't that amazing? How that's exactly the lifestyle of most young people who are left a great inheritance. So Christ here isn't just randomly listing off some things. He understands the nature of man. And he says, listen, if you aren't looking for the end, if you aren't believing that there is a God and a judgment to come, This is how you're going to live. And because we do know, not just believe, we know there is an end to come. How do we know it? Because Jerusalem was sacked from 66 to 70 A.D., just the way Jesus said. And because Jesus said there will be an end where he will come in his kingdom, and so I know it. And he's given us a list of signs to point to it, to help us avoid the bad side of that, to enjoy what is good in Christ's coming. So I know these things, and therefore, with that knowledge, I can guard my heart. And I can sit there and say, why am I not going out carousing? Why am I not going out and getting drunk? Why am I not wrapped up in the cares of this life? Because I know there's a God. And I know there's an audit at the end of my life. Remember that message? I know that there is going to be an accounting that I have to give to a God who is holy, holy, holy. And therefore, I have hope that this is not it. So I have no reason to live like that. I have no reason to go out and get drunk. Why? Why lose my faculties? I have no... I don't have anything to run from. I have something to live for. I have an eternity that I'm preparing for. And so he gives us this. Go, go to Romans 13 with me. We'll see it again stipulated a different way, with, but in three categories. But it's a list of six things. Romans 13. And I like the verse 11. Um, know the time. Do you know what time it is? I didn't wear my watch today. I wore it really faithfully at the conference and I got home. I haven't, don't think I've worn it since, have I? Because um, I've been working out here every day. And if you don't wear it every day, you start to forget. What time is it, folks? Yeah, it's time. And guess what? It's later now than it was before. 
your redemption is nearer now than it was last week when I talked about it. Is your head up? Are you looking for it? He says, listen, know what time it is. Don't guess, don't think, don't believe, don't hope. No, know what time it is. Do you know the time? You should because God gave us a bunch of signs to recognize the times. Here we go. It says our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And that word salvation, you can insert the word redemption and you'll be right on target. Your redemption is nearer than it was. Your redemption is drawing nearer. You see the influence of Luke and Paul on each other and the wonderful synergy of God's word. You might think they had the same author. He has this to say, verse 12, the night is far spent. This was a long time ago he wrote this. (laughs) In his his view, it was far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armor of light. I like that part. Um, Let us walk properly. There's the positive statement. As in the day. You're children of day. You have an armor of light. Walk properly. Not in darkness. And then he lists off darkness. It says revelry and drunkenness. Sound familiar? Lewdness and lust. He has now categorized that area of our, of our uh, physical being. And that's not always just sexualized, but it can be lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, uh, lusting and coveting. Not in strife and envy. I want to include this because it gives us uh, uh, some other facets. And that's why I, am, I say that Christ's list isn't exhaustive. It wasn't all that could be. But I think there are three major categories. And here we have three pairs giving Paul's idea of the three categories. And I want to look at this last one of strife and envy. That I want to include in this idea of what is the world like? Well... If I can't get it for me and I'm not happy, and I think that this is all there is to life, what is that going to create in me? The fundamental spirit behind both envy and strife is hatred, anger, which are two sides of the same coin. It's saying, I'm not getting mine, and they're getting some of my share, and I should be as happy as them, or have at least as much stuff as they have. I'm sure they are happier because they have stuff, or they have pleasure that I'm not enjoying, or I'm missing out. Young people, I want to share with you something. Okay, If you've never experienced a chemical high, you are not missing out. You're not. You haven't missed anything. Except misery. You see, the strife and envy says, I think they're happy. But the problem is, they're doing that not because they're happy, but they're doing it because they have no point. Because they believe the lie of the evolutionist that this is all there is. And brethren, this is not all there is. And so, I can, I don't have to be envious. I got a mansion. 
just over that hillside. In that bright land, I have a home beyond the river. So you have as much stuff as you want. God's giving more stuff than I need. Why have envy? And why have strife or fighting over things of this world? You ever seen one fight over the future? Fight over eternity? They fight over stuff here. You see, fundamentally, we think that these people are happy, and even our media portrays them as somehow there's the happy drunk, somehow there's the uh, indulgent one that has uh, fed all of his fleshly desires, and, and he's really got it, the Hugh Hefner model. And then we've got the model of the rich guy, and he's got it all. But what we find is that all of them are searching. You're envious over people who are in despair. And what does that create? That creates a strife of I deserve what they have. And that's been the fundamental attitude societally behind every overturn of government that has led to a socialistic perspective is I deserve what they have. Um, this is all there is, is what is existing today. I deserve what they have. I don't have to do the work that they had to do to get it. I just deserve it because I'm me. This is all drawn from not believing that Christ is coming. If we really believe Christ is coming, our heads will be way up above all this kind of garbage. We won't even be interested in it. We'll look at it and we'll say, that's stupid. That's sad. Because it's hopeless. And we can lift up our heads. And that lifting up your heads, looking for your redemption, is a sign of hope. It's a sign, not, not, not wishful thinking hope like most Americans think of, but in the Bible, hope is a sure confidence, a sure thing is going to happen. And just as sure as the earth exists, Christ is going to come and establish his kingdom. And that hope lifts up my head from the gloom of this nasty world, and I can live above it. I can live without my uh, fingers and my feet and then my mind and then my whole life and ultimately my heart being swallowed up by its corruptness. I can live above that. I can lift up my head. Why? Because the day is coming. Back to Luke. Luke 21, he says, listen, you're children of the day. We learned that in Romans. You have the armor of light. All right, and so you get the idea of this bright thing that uh, this is a pretty bright room, but if you go outside, it's even brighter. Uh, you go outside and then you come in here and it seems dim. Uh, you go outside on a bright, cloudless day here in New Mexico and you almost have to have sunglasses on. But you go out there and uh, you can see things. It's amazing. You know, I look at something in this room that's poorly lit. Um, I walk outside to see, and then all of a sudden, oh, well, it's very obvious. Listen, you're children of the day. You're clothed in armor of light. This stuff should be obvious to you. And one of the things that should be obvious to us 
is the Lord's coming. Not just the fact of it, but the time of it. Look what Jesus says. He says, listen. Take heed to yourselves. That your hearts not be weighed down. And he talks about that. And that the day come on you unexpectedly. It's the day of Christ shouldn't come and go, oh, is that today? Oh no, I'm not ready. It shouldn't happen. That should never occur. It's, it's, it's this close? Is that a trumpet? It shouldn't happen that way. That's the way it's going to happen for everyone else. That's what verse 35 shares. 35. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. So the whole earth is going to be caught off guard. They're going to be trapped. Because they have been convinced of the lie that everything will continue as everything always has been. And this lie brings nothing but despair and hopelessness. And they have their heads cast down. They're looking down. They're, and, they're, and they're in the wallow of this world. And when Christians participate in this kind of activity because they have forgotten or they have stopped believing that there is an end to all things, that there is a God, that there is, a, that there is a, an audit before God Almighty that we must answer to. There's a day of reckoning there. When we forget that, we start living like this world, you're going to be caught off guard. And that's a dangerous thing. Everything I've read in God's Word makes that a very dangerous thing. What are you saying, Pastor, that we're not saved? I'm telling you that's a very dangerous thing. And so the Bible warns us over and over and over and over again. Don't be found in this condition. The way to avoid it is to keep your head up. Live like the people of hope that you are. And it won't catch you off guard. The whole earth is going to be caught. And once caught, they're in a trap. Described as a snare. The days that come as a snare, and once they're in that trap, and that snare has cinched on them, it's done. And I want that to be perfectly clear. Christ says, it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. I want you to notice something there. For the Christian, you're going to escape before the stuff. Not all the signs, but the stuff the signs point to. We should always be in prayer. Lord, I want to be counted worthy. And that's a very important theological phrase in the Scripture. Whenever you come across that phrase, counted worthy, it's very important. We're going to get to it in just a minute. But as we're looking at life and we're going, is Christ going to come? Oh, yes. So what should we be praying? Lord, I don't want to be, I want to escape that judgment. 
I want to escape the pouring out of your wrath for seven years. Lord, I, I, I want to be able to stand before you and give a positive reckoning for my life. Well, then you better be watchful. Live. Guard your heart to think and realize this world is not all there is. There's a lot more. And so I'm going to live very differently because of that. So, how do we become counted worthy to escape? First of all, I want you to notice that you're going to escape before it comes. Very precious doctrine. And all of your mid-tribulationalists and post-tribs and pre-wrath people that push the catching up of the church farther into the seven-year period that God describes as His wrath um, need to read this passage a little bit more. We are caught up, and that is the rapture right there, that we are to escape. The word escape there, I think is referring clearly to the rapture. That we are to escape before all those things come. Before the wrath of God is poured out on men, we be praying that we are counted worthy to participate in the rapture. What is this counted worthy stuff? Why is it so important? Counted worthy is about imputed righteousness. Imputation is a word we don't use very much, which is unfortunate. It's a great word. It means that you are being credited with something. That, you are, that something is being uh, charged to your account or credited to your account um, from some other entity, whether it be a person or a business or whatever. Um, and so we, want, uh, we often talk about imputed guilt. It could be a bad thing. Imputed guilt is somebody call you guilty for something you didn't do. Um, but in this respect in Scripture, it's called imputed righteousness. That is that we are given a righteousness that isn't our own. And you might say, well, that sounds a lot like grace, because it is. <laughs> okay? By God's grace, He imputes righteousness. Okay? Grace is the attribute of God. And you notice we don't say gracing us. Uh, that is a verb, but, but amongst the work of God's grace is the imputation or the imputing of Christ's righteousness on us. That is that my worthiness isn't because I prayed all the time. My worthiness isn't because I lived a certain way. My worthiness for the kingdom isn't because I went to church or was baptized or did any number of religious activities. My worthiness is counted for me. I am praying to be counted worthy. That is, my prayer is, God impute to me, credit to me, worth. Paul had the right idea of worth, didn't he? What was his view? Sorry about that. What was his view of his worth? Dung. I'm manure. So, do you think Paul, viewing himself as manure, is praying... For imputed worth? Oh, yes. If we view ourselves right, 
We will have no problem doing what Christ asks us to do here, commands us to do. Pray always that you may be counted worthy. Pray always for imputed worth. Pray for God to count you more worthy than you are, to count you according to someone else's worth. And so we're going to take somebody else's worth, and that person is Jesus Christ, and we're going to credit you with it. Wow. That's what I should be praying? Yes. And not just once. Okay? I got goosebumps. And it's not because it's cold in here. Alright? It's not just once. It says praying always that you be counted worthy. We think of salvation as a single prayer somewhere way back there. But salvation is this continual prayer. Lord, today, count me worthy of your kingdom. Impute to me your righteousness. I'm not going to live holy enough for you. I need your help. And salvation, sir, there's a beginning time, and I'm not discounting that. That's precious and valuable and it should be in your life. And if you can't recount that, fix it today, okay? Accept Christ today and start it today. But don't end it today. And don't end it back there when it happened for me when I was 10. Every day, pray always, Lord, count me worthy of your kingdom. It's a prayer of humility saying, Lord, I am not worthy of your kingdom. I pray that you credit me with worth from your Son today. This goes along with 1 John 1 9 incredibly well, doesn't it? We confess our sin. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Wow. And then he goes a step further and imputes to us the righteousness of his Son. That we don't just become neutral. We start out with this great negative this great bankruptcy, this great debt of sin. First John 1 John 1.9 brings us to zero. And passages like that. Luke 21.36 gives us positive. And passages like it gives us a positive in the area of righteousness that we are counted as worthy of the kingdom as Jesus. But we cannot be worthy of that. We must be counted worthy of that. We must be credited, we must be imputed with that kind of worth, with that kind of value. Because all I really am is manure. Even when I'm as good as I possibly can be. Even when I end the day, I say, boy, I lived as well as I could for God today. And I go, and that didn't earn me one day in heaven. I still need your credit, Lord. I still need your imputation of righteousness. Because I've lived as good as I can today, and it's not good enough. That's a very humbling prayer to do, to pray always. You see, part of watching for the kingdom of heaven watching for Christ's return, is to pray this prayer every day. I hear preachers saying, well, it's time to give, you know, I'm calling you, in our camp we have that extensively, you know, I want you to make sure of your salvation. Brethren, I'm going to tell you every day, make sure of your salvation. 
pray that prayer. Lord, count me worthy of your kingdom. You look through the Bible and see how many times you're called upon on a daily basis to reaffirm your commitment to Christ. Does it mean you have to get baptized every day? No. We understand there was a beginning. But the continuing process of my salvation, I have a role to play in that. And that is to come to God humbly, recognizing I don't deserve it. I don't deserve the hope of the truth that you've told me in your word. I certainly don't deserve your kingdom. I have no leg to stand on before you at the audit to come in my life. Lord, can you credit me with some worth in the name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, by the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Credit me. And I trust in that for the audit. I don't trust in what I did this week for the audit. I trust in what Christ did for me this week of forgiving me of my sins, which were many. And then there's a wonderful instruction. We're in the wonderful part, by the way, if you're wondering. The negative is gone. We're into the positive. Pray. For something that of God's grace that He wants to give you. He wants you to escape. He wants you to be involved in the rapture. And it will come to pass. And then he ends with, you get to stand before the Son of Man. This is not to stand before Him in judgment. This is to stand before Him as His disciple, as His follower, as His joint heir, as His family member. This is a very different concept we might look at this and say to stand before the Son of Man as He's judging us, but that's really not the implication here. The, the, the attitude here is that we are counted worthy and that we are now standing before Him as a, a favored knight would stand before its King to receive honor and glory. That's the idea behind this, is that we're standing before the Son of Man as his favored child to receive his accolades. Like well done. Which we said was going to be very rare. Or just simply enter into your rest. You see, we have a hope. And that hope will not disappoint. And because of that hope, we live different lives. I don't need to get drunk. I have no thoughts of despair to run from, to hide from. I don't need to go out carousing. I have more to live for than that. I don't need to get wrapped up in the stuff of this world. I've got a kingdom waiting for me where the stuff of this world is like pavement. That's the most precious stuff of this world. Is pavement there. You wanted a joke earlier. There it is. You heard about that? Rich man who got a deal with God, he could take all of his gold with him to heaven. Gets to the door. Peter's like, why are you carrying all this gold? I got a deal with God. I could bring all my gold to heaven. He says, okay, but I don't know why you want to bring pavement. 
just want to smile. I tell you, it's okay. Pity smiles are accepted at this point. Why would you want to bring pavement to heaven? That's what's waiting for us. Kind of makes you lift up your head out of worrying about the economy, doesn't it? When that's your inheritance. What you have here is just simply a little count to manage for a while. That's all. This is none of this is permanent for you and I. This is but I can invest it in permanent things. That's the wonderful thing. That God allows us to spend things here on earth to invest in something eternal. Paul tells the Philippians that when you've you've met my needs, you've met my physical needs, and because of that, that you've expended your physical resources to meet my physical needs, that that's credited to you in heaven as a permanent resource. It's kind of sad that we only take 10% to invest in things forever. You want me to share that again? We think we're doing really well. We're taking 10% of our income to invest in things that last forever. We're spending 90% on stuff that's going to disappear. And we applaud ourselves for that as being wise. And I'm preaching myself a little bit there too. Okay? Um, we have a hope. A kingdom to come. And I was going to talk a lot more about the signs. And you guys know the purpose of signs. Um, you don't hide signs. Do you? Do you really spend a whole lot of money buying up a bunch of billboards and then put them facing a wall so no one can see them? No. But then we have all the signs. They're big. They're huge. You can't miss them. That Christ is near. And if Paul thought it was near in his day, let me share with you, it's now. Lift your head up and look. Your redemption's here. And so we ought to be praying this prayer. Busily praying this prayer. And when he says pray it always, I would contend that's what he means. Because there's a precious place I think we all want to be. And that is standing in front of our Savior in his favored court. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your great love for us. And Lord, I thank you for this instruction. And Lord, we admit to you that there have been many seasons in our life when we've stopped watching. We've not taken heed to our hearts. We haven't been careful in our thoughts. We haven't guarded ourselves well with the reminder that this life isn't all there is. It's a lie from Satan. The world is swallowed and is reaping consequences of that lie. 
Lord, it is obvious from your word that we have no business being a part of it. Because we are clothed in an armor of light and we are children of the day and we are looking for a day. Lord, our flesh is weak, so we ask for your help. We know you've promised it by your spirit, by your word, by your people. That no temptation has taken us of what's common and that you will always give us a way of escape. Lord, as we look forward to the escape from this world and from your wrath, Lord, help us to look as anxiously for the escape from temptations to sin. That we might live righteously and justly. But Lord, we acknowledge before you that we know that that kind of living isn't really good enough. So as part of our watchfulness, as part of our guard, we pray today, I pray today. Lord, count me worthy of your kingdom. By the shed blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, by the righteousness in his person and character, Tell me worthy to stand in your court as a favored son. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.